Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On the pod today, we will talk to the Senate Minority Leader, Chuck Schumer. And later, we'll talk to the host of With Friends Like These, Anna Marie Cox. Also, check out Pod Save the World this week. Tommy talks to Dr. Karen Donfried about the German elections. Great episode. I still have tickets for the late show in Ann Arbor at 10 p.m. Uh, it's next Friday. And tickets to Santa Barbara in December. Also, Love It or Leave It is going on tour with Pod Save America as well. You can find tickets and everything else at crooked.com slash tour. Exciting, Dan. I can't believe we're going on tour next week. I know. Can I ask you a question? What time is your usual bedtime? My usual bedtime? Yeah. Um, I probably fall asleep around 11 or 11.30. Yeah. Mine's like a little closer to 10 or 10.30, so <laughs> it's going to so, be a real interesting experience <laughs> to do the 10 p.m. show. Yeah. It's going to be very late. I mean, Lovett goes to bed at like 2 or 3, so he'll be fine. Yeah. No, I know. I need to switch my bedtime back. So can... That's good, because the thing I was worried about was Lovett not having the energy for the show. <laughs> real concern. Real concern. Yeah. Let's start with... The untimely death of Graham Cassidy. I thought that was going to be a Hugh Hefner (laughs) lead-in. Yikes. (laughs) That would not be untimely. 91 is a good run. I hope I get to 91. All right. Why did the bill go down? If you believe Donald Trump, it's because an imaginary senator who would have voted yes is in the hospital. (laughs) Did you hear that? <laughs> Donald, yes. Donald, the president of the United States has now said six times that they had the votes for Graham Cassidy, but they couldn't they couldn't get it done by the 30th, September 30th, which is the deadline for reconciliation, because one of the yes votes is a senator who's in the hospital. This has absolutely no basis in, in truth. It's just something completely made up. Thad Cochran, the senator for Mississippi, was home in Mississippi on Monday recovering from a urological issue, <laughs> but he was, I not... was debating whether I was going to bring up the cause, but I'm yeah. glad you did. Well, no, it was his office said so he said so in a tweet. So I, I felt comfortable sharing it. Yeah. But he was never in the hospital. And even if Thad Cochran was there voting, they wouldn't have had the votes. And he would have come back for the vote. I mean, it's ridiculous to even be talking about it. And it's just one of these, like so a couple of people pointed this out on Twitter. It's one of these things that we're all just going to move past. Like, Ugh, there's that crazy old man, the president, spouting off some imaginary fucking scenario again. But uh, it's pretty bad. <laughs> pretty bad that the president just lies like that. Yeah, and it, the thing is, it's like deeper than just he's trying to convince us of why he failed. Right. It's that he's trying to convince himself if yeah. we all get to watch. Which, if you had a friend or an uncle or I don't know, anyone who did that, you would be, it would be concerning behavior. And if you do it once and you get called out on it, you would think you would have the self-awareness to stop. But even after being called out, he continued to say it again. Like he cannot allow himself to accept any sort of blame for this. So he has to believe that he actually did succeed were it not for some reason that he has created in his own head. Right. Or at the very least, good staff work. You know, one of the, someone in the White House would see him say it for the first time and say, hey, boss, you had a little mix up there before he said it five more times in public. I mean, there's two ways to think about it. Did, maybe no one said anything because people are just like, I <laughs> I don't care enough to fight about Trump with it, about this. Yeah. Or someone tried to say something to him and then he just sort of shouted them down. Yeah. And then, he, of course, he digs in. 
Yeah, like he yeah. he digs in once you tell him he's wrong. So it's great. Uh, anyway, the five millionth attempt to repeal Obamacare went down in flames on Tuesday without a vote. Uh, Susan Collins joined John McCain and Rand Paul in publicly opposing a piece of legislation that would have made health insurance unaffordable for more than 30 million Americans and allowed insurance companies to charge people with pre-existing conditions, whatever the fuck they wanted. As always, everyone who showed up or made phone calls made the difference here, particularly the grassroots disability activists who descended on Congress, the little lobbyists who were there, uh, our friends at Move On, Indivisible, a lot of people and a lot of effort went into stopping this bill in a very short period of time, and everyone should feel pretty proud of themselves that they did. Dan, why else did this uh, latest shitburger fail, in your opinion? Well, I think the main reason is it was not a serious attempt to replace the Affordable Care Act. It was a Frankenstein of gifts to, you know, attempted payoffs to quote unquote moderates like Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, some things thrown, you know, red meat thrown to the conservatives like Ted Cruz and Mike Lee. I mean, it was not a serious bill and it was not a serious attempt. Yeah. I mean, we have not – it was, let me put it this way. I don't think any of the other shitburgers that have come before this shitburger were particularly serious, but they were more more serious than this one. This was the most ridiculous of all the shitburgers, and yeah. it could not withstand any scrutiny, and it was indefensible. There was – no one was making – in the past, you would have some quote-unquote – you know, conservative policy experts who would argue for skinny repeal or ACHA or BICRA or whatever the fuck we call these things and make a case for it. They, you know, they would say it's not perfect, but here's why it's good. No person other than Bill Cassidy made a case for this. And his case was just a series of bald faced lies. Right. I mean, when you look at how the thing came to be, which is apparently Former Senator Rick Santorum was in the Senate barbershop with Lindsey Graham and told him one idea for Obamacare is to just split it up into block grants and hand out the block grants to the state so the states can do what they want with it. And Lindsey Graham, who by his own admission knows very little about health care and only learned about health care policy during this process, thought, oh, wow, states have more flexibility. That sounds great. And that's like, you know. In theory, conservatives like the idea of states having more flexibility. They're into federalism, so fine. But the second you got into the details of this plan, it was like a massive cut in funding before you even divided up into block grants. And then they continue to run into this pre-existing condition issue. Because if you get rid of the individual mandate, if you tell people they don't have to buy insurance until they're sick... You can't tell insurance companies that they have to protect people with pre-existing conditions. So none of these bills that the Republicans have put forward stop insurance companies from charging sick people whatever the hell they want. And so they are then forced to lie about that provision in the bill. If they, ha- if they wanted to put forward Obamacare repeal that protected pre-existing conditions, mostly it would look a lot like Obamacare does now, probably just with less money because they'd have to keep the individual mandate and they'd have to keep the regulations that say you have to protect people with pre-existing conditions. I don't know how they ever get out of that problem. (laughs) The the best part of this is that Rick Santorum, a decade after leaving the Senate, is still going to the Senate barbershop. He's just walking down the street going, 
God, these senators have great haircuts. Someone, get me, someone give, me give Rick one. Santorum a job. Just get him out of there. He has one. He has one. What, he's on CNN. Is that the job? Yeah. That's <laughs> hey. That's a job. Back off. <laughs> Sorry, I just didn't know that was the only thing that Rick Santorum was doing. I, I think he, he, I think like, he has th- other jobs too. He finishes his CNN hits and he just like wanders around the Senate barbershop. I guess yeah. I don't know. I mean, um, if Graham Cassidy had passed, it would have been one more piece of legislation than he passed in his decade in the Senate <laughs> or several decades. So the bill fails. Three public no votes. The rumor was some reporters were saying that the whip count was actually 45, meaning there were about uh, four other no votes, three or four other no votes who didn't want to go public. So now the question is, is this really dead? Is Obamacare repeal dead? Uh, Lindsey Graham, right after the defeat of the bill, said it's not a matter of if but when this kind of bill passes. People should know that Republicans have two more chances to repeal Obamacare before the 2018 elections. Number one is they could try to fit Obamacare repeal into tax reform and pass it all in the same package, um, which would only require 50 votes because they're trying to use the reconciliation package this time around now for this tax reform package, so they only have to get 50 votes. So they could try to jam in health care reform and tax reform all in the same bill. Um, what are your thoughts about the prospect of doing that? Well, it's not as crazy as it sounds because no one remembers this, but when we passed the Affordable Care Act on a budget reconciliation bill, we also did it with student loan reform. That's right. Which is, which is why no one, potentially including uh, I just yourself. forgot. I just forgot. Yeah, remember, that's whenever anyone would say, "Why does no one know about our amazing student loan reform accomplishment?" It would be like, because we passed it on the same day as a once in a century domestic policy accomplishment that was not student loan reform. So it is doable, and it can go either way, right? It can make it harder in the sense that you may have Murkowski. You know, you you still need the senators who bailed on Affordable Care Act to, do, to get their tax reform. You can only, you know, you can't lose three senators again. And so do you, you, it's the most likely scenario is it creates the same problem that they have on health care, which is Murkowski and McCain want a bipartisan process and, what, and whatever bill they want to pass is not acceptable to Collins. And then, but on the other side, where tax reform might have trouble is in the House. And we'll talk more about tax reform, just where there are conservatives who who actually believe who actually are pushing for the populist policies that Donald Trump ran on and has abandoned. And ACA repeal might be the thing that gets them to the finish line. But I guess the short version is tax reform is incredibly complicated, healthcare reform is incredibly complicated. It is doable, but obviously more complicated to do the two at the same time. Yeah, I also think if you were uh, if you were trying to do a, a Obamacare repeal, and at the very end of the process you sort of slipped in some tax cuts, that's probably easier than doing it the other way around. Like slipping health care reform or repeal into a piece of legislation suddenly makes health care the topic that we're all arguing about. Like I think it's hard to do it under the radar, and the messaging then for us becomes that much easier and starker in that we're just saying, okay, you're now literally cutting taxes for the wealthiest, raising taxes on middle-class families, 
and taking away their health insurance all in one fell swoop, which, of course, the Republicans, I don't put it past them to want to do that, but it sure highlights the um, just how bad the whole thing is. The Republicans made a big mistake when they declared the Republicans in now on three separate occasions tried to declare their efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act is over. Yeah. Whether it was the Senate vote, two different House votes, and, or potential House votes, and the logic was, and it's it's worth remembering that after the 2012 election when we won, John Boehner told in his press conference after the election said, "Obamacare is the law of the land, and it's going to stay that way." And they have been trying to get this repeat get get from out from underneath repeal for a very long time because it's politically toxic they have no plan and they knew they knew they were playing with fire when they were running on it and never coming up with a replacement plan and it's been dogging them it gets in the way of things it's almost impossible to do expectations are out of whack because they said in 2010, give us a Republican Congress and we'll repeal the Affordable Care Act. And yeah. they didn't do it. Then it was like, well, give us a – well, we need it. We need the Senate. They got the Senate. Then they got the White House. And now they have all three and they can't do it. So Republicans can never – but what they can't do is declare it dead because that inflames the base. As they said, I mean, multiple Republican senators over the last couple of days have said one of the big reasons we did this is because our donors were pissed when we failed in the summer, which is maybe the most cynical thing you could say. I'm skeptical of that. You think that you don't think the donors are really pissed about that? I think grassroots money probably took a hit for it. I think that is probably true. I don't like the lead. There's a New York Times story, uh, I think, by Jonathan Martin, Alex Burns, or either or both, that talked about this. And the lead anecdote was Cory Gardner, who's the head of the NRSC, Mm -hmm. I believe, at some sort of fancy fundraiser. I just, I believe that there were probably the regular people who were giving $5, $10, $15 in mass to Trump who were like, F these people, I'm not giving them money if they can't do this very basic thing. But the the lobbyists and PACs, I just can't imagine that they are – punishing the Republican, they're willing to risk the Republican majority over their failure to do something that they are smart enough to know is near impossible. Yeah, they're they're in it for the tax cuts. So the other vehicle that Republicans have to potentially do this is the 2019 budget. I'm unclear, and I think there's no good answer to this, on the timeline for when you can introduce another reconciliation vehicle for 2019 to try to do this. I would imagine that you'd have to be you'd have to a finish the tax reform push for the 2018 budget and then introduce a 2019 budget sometime next year. I guess that the trick with that is now you're trying to repeal Obamacare while the 2018 midterm elections are happening, which doesn't seem like the politically wisest choice, but you know, Republicans, what are you going to do? Do you know what would worry me? I think I think and budget nerds don't at me on this, but I think it's after October <laughs> 1, 2018 that you can do a 2019 budget resolution. Oh. And well that seems would, tricky. <laughs> well, no, what I think is worrisome would be if Democrats took the house that they would they would use that lame duck session with and as we know from the many legislative accomplishments that we jammed into the 2010 lame duck session, right? Like don't ask, don't tell the start treaty, um, uh, you know, some stimulus 
economic stimulus work, et cetera. We got done because nothing clarifies the mind like losing power yeah. in a few weeks. And so that is a potential fight down the line if we take the house. It's a high-class problem if we take the house. Um, but I think that's where you would see another danger break. I can't imagine they'd be dumb enough to do it between October 1 and November. Election Day. But after that, you could you can, you can pass a shell budget on 50 votes and then do it. And some of these Republican senators will be on their way out the door. So – I mean, it, which could go, is, which could go either way, also because yeah. I, I would imagine that um, jamming through Obamacare repeal uh, the month before you lose the majority on on your way out the door does not satisfy the regular order and bipartisan process that John McCain and Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins have requested. Yep, but I think that so the two takes away is Republicans can never say Obamacare is dead, and Democrats can never believe it's dead because right. every time we ever get complacent about this, it comes right back. So we have to go, we have to keep the pressure on and win elections. And winning elections, there's both winning the congressional elections, there are winning some elections between now and then that sends a message that there's a price to pay for even playing around with repealing Obamacare. That's right. And um, we should also think about the Senate, too, because Murkowski did not end up coming out against this bill. She had she She released a statement that said she didn't like the process, that the numbers weren't there yet. She said she likes the idea that states should have more flexibility and control over their health care dollars. She also did say she wasn't convinced that the bill had adequate protection for people with pre-existing conditions or a strong ban on the return of lifetime limits for insurance claims and that the future bills need to be bipartisan. So that's a good sign. And again, they're not like I said, they're not going to fix their pre-existing condition problem, I don't think, because even if they do, they lose like Mike Lee and Ted Cruz and Rand Paul and all the rest of them. Um, so she holds to that on pre-existing conditions, then we're in good shape. But I think... You know, I think you have to for future efforts like this, we have to keep the pressure on Murkowski and some of those senators because we do not have a guaranteed three votes. That's right. Also, I I just saw this morning uh, Lamar Alexander, the Republican senator from Tennessee, who had been working with Patty Murray, Democrat from Washington state on a bipartisan solution to shore up the Obamacare markets, announced that a deal may come as soon as tonight to come up with a bipartisan solution to this problem, which would be great. Um, um, what do you think, John? I, well, I <laughs> you, got, are you not holding am, your breath for this? No, no. I'm just. I can't believe that after the process just blew up over an uncrossable right. chasm of policy differences, just at the time in which Graham Cassie seemed to be gaining momentum, that they have been able to stitch this thing back together in just a matter of hours. Amazing. Like, what What are the odds of that? These cynical little fucks. <laughs> Oh, man. I mean, the bad news here is that some damage has already been done um, by the attempt to repeal Obamacare because, you know, insurance companies already have to set their rates for next year. And because there was so much uncertainty about whether Obamacare would even exist next year, there will probably be premium increases for a lot of states because, you know, Trump keeps fucking with the market. Also, Uh, He's trying to screw with open enrollment. Open enrollment is a period each year where people who don't have health insurance can go and enroll and get insurance via the Affordable Care Act um, by, you know, just signing up and you get affordable insurance. And the government, at least under Obama, the government helps people figure out how they can buy insurance. They help people sign up. They make sure that you get a good deal on your insurance. They help you navigate what is a very confusing system. And the Trump administration has sort of 
cut budgets, refuse to do any outreach. Um, they're trying to shrink the enrollment period. They are trying their best to not allow people to sign up for health insurance that the government, by law, is supposed to make available to them. It is disgusting. So in addition to cutting the budget that you would use to advertise and tell people, the outreach budget, so to tell people that, they also have told the regional directors who were a key part of the outreach strategy they could do participate in no Obama open no Affordable Care Act open enrollment events. And and this is perhaps the most devious of all things. They're going to do scheduled site maintenance on the su- for 12 hours on the Sundays during the six weeks of the open enrollment period. So that which also, as we know, happens to be some of the most important the people enrolling in healthcare takes a little bit of time. And most people do it on the weekends because that's when they have time to do it. And so huge every hour matters and huge chunks of it. They're just going to shut the website down, which I mean, they're not even pretending this is even like subtle sabotage. They are just trying to blow the thing up from the inside. Yeah. So if the government won't help people enroll in Obamacare, then we need an effort to make sure the rest of us do and that we get the word out. And I think um, we might have more to say about that next week. I think there's some outside groups that are going to try to get the word out about open enrollment and help people enroll in Obamacare and try to pick up the slack where the government has decided to um, just screw everyone possible. So we'll be talking more about that. Also, before we leave healthcare, we should probably talk about Tom Price, the Health and Human Services Secretary, who is just flying around the country on private jets at our expense. Drain the swamp, Dan. Drain the swamp. <laughs> Tom, do you remember in the early days <clears throat> of Tom Price's time on the national stage when he he'd been nominated as HHS Secretary? And it came out that he had been involved in a number of fairly sketchy stock deals uh, where he just happened to invest in companies right about the same time that Congress, would, in a, via a committee he was in charge of, was about to do things to help said companies. And we made some hay about it. And a lot of Republicans, including ones we know who work on the Hill, were like, Tom Price is one of the most ethical people I've ever met. <laughs> if anything, this is just a case. This is just a case of him being naive about how stocks work. Yeah. And that seems is, is he also like fucking a, naive about how a private jet works? Yeah. <laughs> is that, so, is that, has he never experienced that? Oh, I thought this private jet was free. <laughs> so fuck. He, I have heard nothing from those people, and Tom Price is terrible. There's no two ways about it. He is bad at his job. He has used his position to enrich himself. He has chosen a lavish lifestyle as the HHS secretary at taxpayer expense at the same time that he is cry- that he is claiming that we don't have the funds to help enroll people in the Affordable Care Act or do other things to help people. He's yeah, literally, just literally, I mean, terrible. He is, yeah. We, we are cutting the budget to tell people to help people sign up for health insurance, and we're going to move some of that money to fly me around on a fucking private jet. <laughs> it is like, oh, I mean, I, he... Tommy had a good idea yesterday, which is like the DNC or some outside group, maybe some pack on the Democratic side, should start running some ads on this because this is the, this this is like dra- Steve Bannon, fucking populist hero Steve Bannon, has got to be sitting there thinking. 
That is a bad move on <laughs> Tom Price's part because all this whole, this whole drain the swamp bullshit. So like people upset about elites and government officials and powerful people bilking taxpayers. Like this is this is going to be one of the most politically unpopular things to Trump's base even forget about our base that uh, the Trump administration has done. And we should be like, this is a scandal that we should be talking about uh, from now through 2018. Also, Scott Pruitt, EPA administrator, $58,000 private jet rides. I think Juliana Goldman just broke that news yesterday. I mean, now we've got two of them, two cabinet secretaries that are running around on private jets at the taxpayer expense. It's almost as if it was all the Trump bullshit. Administration is not on the level. It is the yeah. thing I found very maybe they tiring, weren't telling us the truth. That seems to be par for the course. the The thing of that you know, they've been reading all these leaks in Axios and from Mackie <laughs> Haberman of Trump administration officials saying that Trump is mad at Tom Price over this. One thing we know about and Trump, that, he's always been against waste. Yeah, and then. And then there's a, there's a, and I think this, I can't remember who this was, but uh, there was some report maybe in Bloomberg that Trump and Price had spoken on the phone where, and Trump had expressed his uh, disappointment and anger, but he was not going to fire Price. And like people were surprised by that. Yeah, no. Well, you know, Trump, like, when he's I, upset about something, usually he holds his tongue and uh, keeps yeah. his temper in check. Yeah, it, and if there's anything that would really upset Trump, it is using using the government to help yourself. <laughs> like, that's basically the whole ethos of the Trump administration. So anyway, that happened. So we should move on to the the special election or the runoff that was held in Alabama on Tuesday. Roy Moore, a former chief justice of the Alabama Supreme Court who was forced out of that job twice, beat the incumbent Republican senator from Alabama, Luther Strange, in a runoff election on Tuesday. Strange was appointed to fill Jeff Sessions' seat, supported heavily by Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump, and the rest of the Republican establishment, to the tune of about $10 million in ads that McConnell's PAC dumped in the race to try to save Strange. Moore, on the other hand, was supported by Steve Bannon, Nigel Farage, and a cast of lunatics. He won by about nine points. And then, of course, after he was... Trump deleted all of his tweets in support of Luther Strange after the race was over, which is a very... Very shrewd move, Donald Trump. Shrewd move. So you might be asking yourself, who is Roy Moore? I heard he was very crazy, but I don't know why. Well, Moore said that homosexual conduct should be illegal, that Representative Keith Ellison shouldn't be allowed to serve in Congress because he's Muslim, that 9-11 and Newtown were punishment from God, that God is sovereign over our government, and he was removed as Chief Justice for planting a 5,000-pound granite monument of the Ten Commandments inside the state Supreme Court building. He said that there's no such thing as evolution. He referred to Native Americans and Asian Americans as reds and yellows. That was two weeks ago. He said that some communities in Indiana and Illinois are under Sharia law. Great guy. I love that we just gloss over the fact that he said homosexuality should be illegal. Yeah, just illegal. When when he was asked whether um, homosexual conduct should receive the death penalty, he didn't have an answer. Also, didn't have an answer. He was well, he's on the fence on that one. Well, John, I would imagine that everyone, Republicans and Democrats, could agree that these views are so far out of the mainstream that they would never that they would shun him right away. Uh, that he would be seen as sort of a wart on the body politic. 
I have that ba- how the Republicans I have, responded? I have bad news for you, Dan. Uh, the Republican, Nas- Republican National Committee put out a statement immediately embracing Roy Moore, saying that he will help pass our conservative agenda. We need this bigot to pass our tax cuts, is the message. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, he's a big fan now. He, he, he called him afterwards. They talked on the phone. He said he's a great guy. Mike Pence, um, you know, preparing for his own version of The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, he put out a statement saying, yeah, no, Roy Moore's great. Love him. Wonderful. <sighs> huh. I never would have guessed. And then there was a great, uh, I think it was a New York Times story, where, or maybe it was Politico. Anyway, apologies to whichever outlet it was. Um, they went and they asked a bunch of Republican senators what they thought about Roy Moore. And, <laughs> yes. and all these Republican senators are like, who? Never met him. Don't know him. Think, I, I don't know. We need a Republican. We need someone in the seat. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm sure. I'm sure you've never fucking met him. I'm sure you have no idea who he is. Yeah, Senator Kennedy of Louisiana, Republican Louisiana, said, he's a bright Well, he he has a right to his own opinions. This is America. It's like, what? In recent memory, has anyone in the Republican Party suggested that some group of people who may wear helmets to their jobs on Sundays should not express their opinions? Huh. Uh, you know, it is so bad. I mean, let's talk about the race. This seems like a very good chance that Roy Moore wins in Alabama, um, where, you know, Democrats routinely get uh, 15 to 16 percent of the white vote in that state. And they, they are not uh, known as very liberal. Um, the, the Democratic candidate that's running against him is a former federal prosecutor named Doug Jones, who said uh, people want a candidate focused on kitchen table issues. People are tired of being embarrassed in this state, which is really not a bad slogan for Doug Jones to run against Roy Moore. Don't embarrass Alabama, vote for me instead. But uh, I don't know. Do you think, do you think there's any chance for, uh, for Doug Jones? Well, as you may have heard, I don't really do election predictions anymore. Mm, I, really I, did. Well. I did. We, didn't I mean, have, we don't Ale- have a good track record. Yeah. Well, we did. We're like, we we've did. won loss. Yeah. We're like, we're Small. like the 2008, 2007, 2008 Patriots. Back off. <laughs> and so it's hard. It's Alabama. It's hard. Is there a shot? Yeah. And should, I think Democrats should, and I use Democrats as a broad term to include the larger progressive grassroots community, not just the DSCC and DNC, should be willing to spend some money to see if it's doable. And don't walk away. Don't just decide this is Alabama. We have no shot. We're not even going to try. And then a month out, a poll comes back and Doug Jones is only down four. And now it's too late. So I think I think it you can leave no you know, you can leave no money on the table here. And so I think it's worth we we should do not walk away now. Give it a shot and see if it can be done. It's like have expectations in the right place. It's Alabama. It's been a long time since we've had a Democratic senator there. See, let's not just write it off right away like we did with Montana and Kansas. Yeah. Uh, special House special elections earlier this year. I think that's right. I think the, uh, the larger issue is, you know, what does this say about the Republican Party? Well, you know what it says. The Republican Party is willing to embrace someone who thinks homosexual should be illegal. Homosexual, homosexual activity should be illegal and that uh, Muslims shouldn't serve in Congress. The party has embraced embraced a candidate for the U.S. Senate who believes those things. 
That is that is what it says about today's Republican Party. When you asked on Twitter, like, what would it take for the Republicans not to uh, embrace a candidate, a Republican? So, someone, I wish I had written this down, uh, who it was, but responded to you with a cannibal with a single, single payer platform, which I thought was so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's yeah. that's about right. That's about right. Yeah. Um, Which to be very clear, a cannibal with a plan to lower the corporate tax rate would be embraced with in, both arms. Totally in. Yeah. yeah. Just don't be a cannibal for single payer. So Steve Bannon was obviously behind this uh, this more fiasco, or at least he was helping it along. Uh, I think he spoke at a rally. <laughs> Maybe I don't know if it was the rally where Roy Moore uh, pulled out a gun during the rally. <laughs> <laughs> Which he did. That happened. He pulled out a revolver during his political rally. He was also wearing a cowboy hat. <laughs> and so he looked like a grown man playing like in costume. It was so <laughs> in a child's costume. It was just so crazy. He's been all these all these uh, media outlets keep calling him a firebrand. That's the that's the term for him. That's the term for being a fucking crazy bigot now, the firebrand. And um, someone said, yeah, like he's a firebrand, meaning he actually will fire weapons in public. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess firebrand is one step better than working class populist, which is what we call the last right. uh, <laughs> the last bigot on a, a running for election. So Bannon now wants to target other Republican senators who are too establishment, too cozy with Mitch McConnell, um, who is now public enemy number one among their conservative base, which is awesome. So he wants to target Senator Wicker in Mississippi, Jeff Flake in Arizona, Dean Heller in Nevada. Bob Corker just retired this week as well, senator from Tennessee, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. So now there's going to be a race in Tennessee. Bannon's going to try to get some conservative nutcase to run there. Do you think this is a a good thing or a bad thing for Democrats? And then we can talk about a good thing and bad thing for America as well, which seems even more important. Yeah, huh. That is a great question. Um, <laughs> whenever I hear Steve Bannon or Donald Trump attack Mitch McConnell, I really have conflicting emotions about it because it's like, wait, are the enemies of my enemy my friend? Am I friends with Steve Bannon? <laughs> I don't really know how to. I don't really know how to feel about that. But in terms of winning elections, yes, this is good. We we were able to keep the Senate in 2010 because a very similar dynamic happened, which was Mike Lee, who was uh, who is now the senator from Utah, but he challenged uh, Utah Senator Bob Bennett in the primary. And Bob Bennett was an establishment, conservative, but establishment institutionalist Republican. No one thought there was any chance he was going to lose. And Mike Lee kicked his ass, became senator. That then inspired a range of crazies to run against Republican senators. Christine O'Donnell from the great state of Delaware. She who is not a witch. She she was not a witch, uh, but has dabbled in witchcraft. uh, Ran against Mike Castle. A incredibly popular incumbent Democratic House member who was running for Joe Biden's seat and and would have been a shoe in. Christine O'Donnell runs and wins, which then so if you end up with in states better than Alabama with people like Roy Moore, we have a shot. In you know there are cases of like Todd Aiken who uh, defended rape in Missouri, which allowed. Uh, 
you know, helped Chris help Claire McCaskill win in 2012. You had in Indiana, I can't remember what it was, but Joe Donnelly was running against a lunatic who I think also defended rape. Uh, it was a trend. And so in the sense of, would we like to run against the worst candidate possible? Yes. That is good. Where it is bad is if these people win, which is what happened in the House in 2010, and you now have a Congress that is ungovernable because you have a bunch of Roy Moores who blow things up uh, for sport. Yeah. I mean, I I also worry about, look, you know, there was a, if we, if if only we get Donald Trump in 2016, things will be easy and it'll be so much harder if we have a moderate a more moderate candidate like a Jeb Bush or a Marco Rubio, and uh, and turns out Donald Trump won. I mean, so I am, I am concerned that, uh, however many years later, a lot of the energy on the right is behind these crazy fucking candidates, unfortunately. And so I don't know. You're, I mean, Alabama is an easy case, right? Because Alabama is so conservative and so far to the right that maybe more is a more inspiring candidate to that base than strange would have been and so you get more people to the polls i mean steve bannon's of the view that this is all about turnout this is about getting the base to the polls and people being excited and that if they're not excited they stay home now i think that that could work in places like alabama i think the the tough part of this is if you start the gop civil war which bannon is doing more broadly, there's going to be a ton of Republican candidates running all across the country, especially for the House, that are seen as more establishment candidates that have been in Washington for a long time, that have done whatever Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan told them. And if they're sitting there running and the Republican base is saying, oh, we only want to vote for the crazies and there's a bunch of McConnell and Ryan stooges around there, I think they might have a turnout problem. And that it might depress, like Steve Bannon's crusade might depress turnout in races where there are establishment Republicans. And that could be good. But I actually don't know if a lot of these uh, super far right lunatics end up winning primaries. If that is, um, I can't tell if that's good for us or bad for us politically. (laughs) Certainly bad for the country and bad for Congress. Yeah, it's going to depend on the state. And the other thing that is just the reason why these primaries might be helpful to us is... There's only so much, so much amount of money to go around, and every dollar the NRSC has to spend to try to protect a, a Republican incumbent is just a dollar they're not going to be able to spend to beat a Democrat, right? Yeah. And so I think it is good for Democrats in the short term if we win these seats. It's bad for the country if we don't. I also think it's a fascinating dynamic for a party – to be at each other that not that the Democrats are the picture of unity right now, far from it, but we are much more unified and coherent than the party in power, which is just it is a, that is the opposite of how it should go. Republicans won everything all up and down the ballot. They control every lever in power in Washington, and they're trying to destroy each other. I mean, you have the president's chief strategist, former chief strategist, a month removed from the White House running an aggressive campaign against the Senate majority leader whom Donald Trump depends on to pass his agenda is it's a pretty crazy thing to be in this situation this early in the Trump presidency. Yeah. The other uh, interesting thing is uh, Roy Moore said that if he was in the Senate, he would have voted against Graham Cassidy because it's socialized medicine. So you also get, 
you're going to get a bunch of purists in there and causing trouble like Rand Paul has caused trouble on the right for McConnell or Ted Cruz and Mike Lee. And that actually could make it harder for McConnell to do things like repeal Obamacare. So that could be a silver lining of this as well. But again, I don't want Roy Moore in the fucking U.S. Senate. That guy's a maniac. No, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Um, but but Donald Trump is president, so everything's embarrassing. Everything's embarrassing. But one one other thing on this, the you know Steve Bannon's going to take all the credit for this, but the person most responsible for Roy Moore winning is Donald Trump. Yeah, because even though he endorsed Luther Strange and sent a number of awkward tweets about how great "quote unquote" Big Luther was. He was spending most of his time attacking the Republican Senate majority and attacking McConnell. And so he yeah. was actually making a case against the establishment candidate 80% of the time and making a case for the establishment candidate 20% of the time. And so he has created this situation where he has turned his voters against the establishment. And I think it's an interesting dynamic to look at both for 18 is Trump is un was at least in this case unable to get his voters to vote for the establishment candidate and which shows some limits to his power and open question as to what if some of these primaries happen and the establishment candidate wins are his voters who have been told by Steve Bannon and by Donald Trump himself that Jeff Flake is terrible Dean Heller's terrible are those voters are going to be willing in 2018 to turn out to, vect- to elect an establishment, to totally. elect a Republican who's a member of the establishment that Donald Trump says is terrible. I agree with that. Uh, Trumpism is more powerful than Trump, is what we learned. So let's talk about tax reform. <laughs> let's, ju- for fun here, let's start with globalist Goldman Gary Cohn's interview on ABC this morning with George Stephanopoulos. He's he's standing in front of the White House, Gary Cohn, and he tells Stephanopoulos this is a plan that solves for the middle class. First of all, solves for the middle class is a sort of phrase. The word solves for is a phrase that you'd only hear in fucking Goldman Sachs. A plan that solves for the middle class and doesn't cut taxes on the rich. So then Stephanopoulos says, well, now that's obviously bullshit when you look at the numbers. So Stephanopoulos says, well, can you guarantee that middle class families won't pay more? And Gary Cohn says, well, there's always an exception to every rule. <laughs> he said, well, can you guarantee that rich people or Donald Trump won't get a tax cut? Gary Cohn's like, look, George, blah, 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 blah. And just it is the please go watch it. It is um, it is quite a performance by Gary Cohn. I hope that this Goldman Sachs executive sells this faux populist tax plan all over the country. It would be wonderful for us. <laughs> there's just this great moment. And in the interview, which is entirely split screen. So you're looking at Gary Cohn's face basically the entire time. Which looks like and he'd Marie, rather be anywhere but uh, but yeah, on that television he's, screen. He starts off as with the typical Wall Street master of the universe swagger. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of the interview, it dawns on him that he is royally screwed up has no idea what he's doing and is going to be in big trouble with Donald Trump because you can fly on a private jet, you can build taxpayers, you can be terrible with your job, but do not be bad on TV. That is the one mortal sin in Trump world. And he just has this look of utter panic that, that is just behind his eye, in his eyes for the rest of the time. And it is, uh, it is so much fun. Don't, don't be bad on TV. 
don't attack the president publicly for siding with white nationalists and white supremacists in Charlottesville. That's Gary is 0 for 2. It's not uh, not good for him. So this is a $5.8 trillion tax cut. They want to, there's seven tax brackets now. They want to consolidate them into three at 12%, 25%, 35% tax bracket. That, that, that lowest tax bracket is, by the way, higher than now. So that's a higher tax bracket for lower income people. The Trump administration claims they make up for it with by doubling the standard deduction. It seems that math is a little fuzzy, which we can talk about later. Um, the corporate rate would go from 35% to 20%. Um, the tax deductions people take would largely disappear, including for state and local taxes. Basically, only charity and some of the mortgage deduction is kept. Foreign income made by American companies will be tax-free. How's that for an America-first policy? The estate. Wait, <laughs> say, say that again. That's right, Dan. If you're a company that makes, if you're a company, American company that decides to go overseas to make a bunch of money, which I would also presume would take jobs from the United States, you now can get a tax break for doing so. America first, Donald Trump. The estate tax would be abolished. And uh, Josh Barrow has a, a couple great pieces about this tax plan. Uh, he dug into the numbers, found that moderate to upper moderate income families who take itemized deductions will pay more in taxes. Um, so basically, this is a tax increase for many ordinary families to pay for a tax cut for the rich. That is a true statement. And that, to me, is the political problem for the Republicans in the Trump administration with this plan. It doesn't mean they won't pass it. It doesn't mean they won't have the votes to pass it, but it is certainly a messaging challenge. It is a messaging challenge. As we, as, as we say in the business. <laughs> yes. It is also substantively absolutely shitty. It is. I mean, I think the thing, a couple of things are interesting about this. One is they are trying, much like Graham Cassidy, they are trying to sell this on a big lie with both Trump and Gary Cohn saying that the wealthy would not get a tax break. That is simply and obviously not true. They would get a huge tax break. And this is an, a very important point that uh, George Stephanopoulos nailed Gary Cohn on, who uh, apparently did zero prep for this interview. Because um, there were two questions that have happened in every interview about the release of every single tax plan by every Republican since the beginning of time. Will the middle <laughs> class get a tax increase and will the wealthy benefit? And if you're not going to prep for those questions, don't even ask where the interview is taking place. Um, but Trump has himself on multiple occasions, both in the his tax reform event uh, speech on Wednesday in Indiana and then in, I think on Twitter, has said that he would not get a tax break from this. Now, we don't know that for sure in the sense that he doesn't release his tax returns, mm, yes. but we know that for sure. Very long audit. Very, one, of the, one of the longest, most complicated audits in history, Donald Trump's taxes. Some, somehow we can't seem to get them, although uh, Bob Mueller might try. Yeah, no, I mean, like, Josh Barrow made the point that, at least in the Bush administration, when they tried to sell their tax cut, they basically said, this is a tax cut for everyone. And it was a tax cut that was enormously tilted towards the wealthy that they didn't pay for, that we've been paying for for years. And, you know, we all think it was awful uh, on the Democratic side. But they got to go out there and be honest in using the statement, everyone gets a tax cut. These guys are, like you said, 
starting this whole thing on a lie, which is the middle that's solving for the middle class and then the rich people don't get a tax cut when that is provably untrue. This because once again, <laughs> they don't give a fuck about the truth. <laughs> they just they think they're going to lie to you and get away with it because they have many times before. I mean, that is the that is the silver lining in the cat in the Graham Cassidy fact is they tried to lie and it didn't work. Thanks. In most in most part to Jimmy Kimmel using his platform, yeah, they were able to to convince people of the actual truth, and it didn't be. And to the media's credit, I will say it was not treated as a he said she said. Jimmy Kimmel says yeah. pre existing conditions are not covered. Bill Cassidy says they are. It was treated. It was very done. The media did a good job of saying this is the truth. And what Bill Cassidy is saying is not the truth. And in the early, you know, both in the Stephanopoulos interview with Gary Cohn, but then also the coverage of of the, the rollout of the tax reform plan, the media has done a good job in the outset here of saying that that is not true. The other thing is this: I have this vague recollection of a lanky, sad-eyed P90X <laughs> doing gentleman from Wisconsin – believing that our deficits were out of control and we were hurtling towards a Greek-like crisis. $5.8 trillion <laughs> tax cut, he now he now proposes. Paul Ryan. How are they paying for this? Are there commiserate tax increases and cuts to the federal budget? Yes. Well, they have paid for some of it, I think all but maybe 2 or $3 trillion with uh, tax increases, uh, moderate to upper mi- moderate a uh, uh, moderate to upper moderate income families by taking away people's deductions, particularly state and local deductions. That is how they're going to pay for some of this. The rest, eh, just add it to Did the you deficit. Say add it to the debt. Tr- trillion with a T. T. Yeah, that's a big number. Okay. We have no money. Yeah. We have no money for your health care though. Medicaid is out of control. We must cut Medicaid. It's out of control. The, the it is a weird world. To live it, like I just don't understand the Republican passion for this issue, and like I understand why rich people want tax cuts. That makes complete sense to me. But can you just imagine you're just like a staffer on Capitol Hill, and every day what what makes you get up early, hop on the metro, work hard for less money than you could earn in the private sector is just to cut taxes for corporations. What a <laughs> what a life that is. I mean, I'm guessing they would tell you that the government, every time they spend your money, fucks it up, they waste it, and that you should, everyone should keep all their money, and rich people pay more taxes right now. And so when you when you dis, dismantle government and send it back to people, obviously rich people and companies are going to get more because they pay more now. And that what they really hate is government, you know, um, crushing our freedom by doing things like giving people health insurance, building roads, building schools. <laughs> um, that's what, that's probably what they would say. I guess that's their argument. It's an argument that does not have a large constituency in this country anymore. Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and Gary Cohn seem to be the last people who believe that. Steve Bannon would probably tell you that that idea, that that belief doesn't hold much currency among the Republican base today. We would tell you that it certainly doesn't hold any currency among the Democratic base today. But there are these, some of them were never Trump Republicans, some of them are just Republican establishment figures in Washington who are still peddling trickle-down economics, get rid of government, give everyone a huge tax cut as 
not just an economic policy that they believe in, but, you know, a politically wise thing to do. And I think that they are wrong. <laughs> if you if you haven't uh, if you haven't been able to tell. Is that it? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess. The only thing I'd say is that there's an irony to Trump promoting this because his political success was identifying the gap between where the Republican base is and the pro-Wall Street, pro-wealthy policies of the Republican establishment. Right, but he, he, but he didn't, but he's an idiot. I mean, he, yeah. Steve Bannon identified that. Donald Trump is a cable news viewer who just yells at the TV and then became president and is now being pushed around by Gary Cohn and a bunch of Goldman Sachs executives who want him to give big tax cuts, just like he was pushed around by Steve Bannon and the other people who wanted him to deport immigrants. The guy's a fucking moron. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's just m- going from tweet to tweet and yelling at Fox and Friends all day. His, well, he does have a, a set of core beliefs, which are basically around inciting racial grievances for shits and giggles. <laughs> yes, that, that's correct. That is a core belief. Okay, when we come back, we will talk to the Senate Minority Leader, Chuck Schumer. We are very lucky to welcome back to the program the Senate Minority Leader, Chuck Schumer. Senator Schumer, how are you? Great to be on. Uh, John, last time we, I was on the show, you were on your honeymoon. I hope everything's working out great. It is, it is working out well. Thank you. He's still married, so that's good. Yeah, still, <laughs> it's going well so far. Um, hey, listen, just I perform one marriage in my life. They were divorced 10 months later. I am never performing another marriage. <laughs> oh, nice. I, I just performed my first a couple of weeks ago, so hopefully I have a good track record. Um, so you have come out against this tax proposal from Donald Trump as a giveaway to the rich. The White House has been courting Senate Democrats anyway. How do you keep the caucus as united as you did during the health care battle? Well, that's a great question, and it's a very big challenge for us. But the bottom line is, first, learning what this plan is. And the more people learn about the plan, uh, the more they dislike it. We had 45 of the 48 Democrats sign a letter that had three watchwords. One, no tax breaks for the top 1%. And I would add to that wealthy and powerful corporations as well. And I can talk about each of those. Second, we don't want to increase deficit spending. And third, we want them to do it in a bipartisan way. In other words, not reconciliation, how they tried to jam health care through, but do it with us. They are violating all three on the first day. This is a tax plan aimed at the wealthiest people. It's almost a parody. Uh, It's hard to believe they, after saying Donald Trump, Donald Trump's not telling the truth about his plan. Neither is Gary Cohn. Neither is Steve Mnuchin. And I think certainly Mnuchin and Cohn know it. They know they're not telling the truth, given their financial backgrounds. Um, Amazing. They said they would not help the wealthiest people. The rate now goes down from 39.6 to 35. But amazingly and surprisingly and awfully, they raised the top rate on working class people, the poorest of people, from 10 to 12. Um, They have these pass-throughs for wealthy corporations, big hedge funds, fancy law firms, where people will pay no corporate tax and only 20%. It's, It's a disgrace. And listen to this one. The more kids you have, the more taxes you pay if you're a middle-class family. 
because while they are doubling the standard deduction, that's $12,500, they are eliminating the individual deduction, and that is $4,000 a person. So if you're a family of three, uh, you break even, and if you're a family of four, you pay more taxes. Middle-class families, even in, uh, in just about any state who have a lot of kids, let me tell you, this is an anti-Mormon bill. It's an anti-Orthodox Jewish bill in the sense that these family, these people have lots of kids and uh, they're losing those deductions. Second, um, uh, deficit reduction. It's estimated that this goes five to seven trillion dollars. And here's we know what they'll do. Five to seven trillion in deficit reduction. When Bush did his tax cut in 2001 and 2003, within a year they said, oh gee, the deficit is so bad, we're going to have to cut entitlements. We're going to have to cut Social Security, the safety net, Medicare, Medicaid, and they tried to do it. You know, that was one of my first ventures with Harry Reid, and we stopped them. Um, that's what's going to happen. In fact, by the rules of the House and Senate, they could actually invoke sequestration, which would be automatic cuts in some of those entitlements. And third, they're trying to do this under this reconciliation, which means they get no Democratic votes. So this is an awful plan. And I just make one more point here, and I'm sorry to go on, but this is so important for your listeners to hear. They say it's going to create jobs. You know, reducing the tax on corporations will create jobs. Well, and will create economic growth. Two examples. One, corporate America, the top corporations in America, are making more profit than ever right now and paying a smaller percentage of taxes uh, on those profits than they ever have. They're not creating many jobs right now. Uh, AT&T wants this tax break. Uh, Randall Stevenson talked about it. AT&T is making record profits uh, has more money that they're just keeping there and has cut something like eight, I don't remember the exact number, about 80,000 jobs. And then we have the great state of Indi of uh, Kansas, conservative state, Sam Brownback, right-wing uh, governor gets in. And they cut taxes dramatically, and they predict it's going to cause huge growth. There was such a huge deficit that they just had to increase taxes. As I recall, the same thing happened with Ronald Reagan um, in 1981-82. Uh, Cutting corporate taxes, cutting individual taxes on wealthy people does not create jobs. With corporations, it means they do stock buybacks, increase the salaries of the wealthiest people, uh, do dividends, all of which goes to the top 10% and the top 1% in particular. This is fallacy put out by right-wing uh, think tanks who are just interested in greed, getting, paying less taxes themselves, but it will not create jobs. So on all four grounds, no good. <laughs> Senator, how in the Trump era, one of the challenges is the fact that they simply lie about the policy. And so as you mentioned, Gary Cohn this morning was on ABC saying that the wealthy do not get a tax break. Donald Trump has said several times since this plan came out that he would not get a tax break when all the reports, when all the analyses say that's absolutely not true. How do you have a debate around a policy when, when your opponents simply lie about it with no regard for consequences or yeah, evidence? Well, yeah, well, first we got to call them out for it. Here's what I said about Gary Cohen on the floor of the House, uh, floor of the Senate today. He also said the administration believes it can, qu it quote, can pay for the entire tax cut through growth 
by using a dynamic scoring model. I said, Gary Cohn comes from Goldman Sachs. If he used the kind of funny math at Goldman Sachs the way he is in Washington, he'd be kicked out of the, he would have been kicked out of the firm a long time ago. He should know better, uh, and he does know better. He's just saying it. So we're going to call what their, their way of uh, characterizing some of this fake math. President says there's fake news. Well, right here, there's fake math. But second, the public is, is, is on our side already. About 70% of the people believe the tax code favors the wealthy. And a, similarly, not quite as high a number, but a very high number believe that President Trump's tax plan, this was before it came out, would favor the wealthy. So what we need to do, frankly, is replicate what we did with health care. We need an outside strategy and an inside strategy. The outside strategy is for all of the concerned groups, and not just uh, groups who focus on tax and fiscal issues, but if you're a health care group and they, and they pass this, there'll be such a huge deficit, health care will be slashed. If you're a group that provides food to people, if you're a group uh, that depends on infrastructure and road growth, all of this will be slashed if this plan passes. And we're going to alert everybody to this. If the public is as against this as they were against Trump care, it'll be defeated. And that will help unify us at home in our more moderate states, as you mentioned. And uh, I think even the three who didn't sign the letter um, are very strong fiscal hawks. They don't want the deficit increased, and they've stated that several times. Uh, and if they see that the public uh, sees that uh, Donald Trump is not telling the truth about this and what the plan is, um, we, we will succeed. So we have to get the truth out. The public is inclined to believe us, but if we rest, if we're complacent, if we think, well, we want health care, we can relax on this one, we could lose, because you're right, they, they mischaracterize everything they're doing. And this is an old issue for the hard right. The hard right big wealthy corporations, big rich people like the Koch brothers care more about reducing their taxes than anything else, and so they make it up. They hire these think tanks, you know, that put out miles and miles of BS on how tax breaks will create jobs, and uh, we just have to work harder. I think the public's inclined, though, to be on our side. Senator, you and Nancy Pelosi cut a deal with Donald Trump to push the fight over government funding and the debt ceiling to the end of the year. You now have leverage in that fight because the Republicans are going to need Democratic votes to lift the debt ceiling and to fund the government. What are you going to ask for of the Republicans? I know, obviously, there's legislation to um, give dreamers a path to citizenship and keep them in this country. Are you going to ask for anything on Obamacare? I can imagine you saying, you know, fully funding the government means fully funding Obamacare and make that a condition of the deal. Right. Okay. Here are three things. We did this deliberately because we wanted to increase our leverage. And lucky, luckily enough for the American people, we were able to succeed. The first is not just the Dreamers. And it'll, we want the full Dreamers Act, not some cutback thing. You know, there's some talk. Uh, um, let dreamers become citizens, but they can't bring their parents in. We have never had two classes of citizens in America. It's probably one of the most major things that distinguishes us from Europe. People come to Europe, they work, they can leave the country, come back, but they never feel they'll be part of Germany or France or Italy. In America, immigrants have always felt they could become full-fledged Americans. We can't change that. So we don't want to cut back on dreamers, but we also are adamantly opposed to the wall. You know, I live in Brooklyn, you guys know that. And I see the Statue of Liberty out my window. I live on the 10th floor of an apartment building. That's the symbol of America. 
Can you imagine welcoming people, saying, bring us your poor, your tired, your wretched masses? I don't remember the rest of it. Either. Anyway, um, can you imagine if that symbol was replaced by a big wall, what that would say to the world? So on the whole issue of immigration and immigrants, we want to get the Dreamers, full Dreamer Act done, but we want to prevent these bad things, including things against sanctuary cities and more, and we'd fight internal enforcement. Second thing we want to do is stabilize Obamacare, ACA. We would like to certainly see cost sharing made permanent and long. Um, there are other changes such as reinsurance provisions that can help stabilize Obamacare and deal with people who have very high medical expenses. Um, and so there, there are some things we would want to do to help stabilize Obamacare. That would be number two. And number three is a good budget. You know, they propose slashing in the House, particularly uh, so many, whether it be uh, food stamps or funding for EPA uh, funding uh, for education, for infrastructure. They propose slashing all of it. And it's not just, you know, things the, the things that they say, oh, the liberals love this. I mean, they cut uh, transportation funding, which has generally been a bipartisan type issue. So we can restore all of those and get a good budget, which is our third goal. And that concomitant with that is eliminating poison pill riders, anti-labor, anti-environmental, anti-choice, anti-women, environmental, anti-LGBT riders, which they put in there, we can get out. The leverage of the debt ceiling and having all of this come together at once should really help us. That's our goals. Senator Schumer, just take us in the room a little bit. What's it like to negotiate a deal with Trump? And do you have any concerns about blowback from the Democratic base about being seen working with Trump? Well, here has always been my principle, and that is this. I am not going to obstruct for its own sake, but I am not going to compromise for its own sake either. Go, be guided by our internal gyroscope, our principles. So if he, for instance, comes round to our view on dreamers, which Nancy and I were able to persuade him of uh, in that meeting, fine, we'll work with him. He says he needs border security. Well, we're not against border security. We're not against, we're totally against the wall. We're against all kinds of very invasive type things and internal enforcement. But, you know, if it's more drones or uh, better roads along the border, that probably would be worth it in terms of getting a full dreamer act. So that's what we do. And we have been, uh, generally, there has been almost huge acceptance of both our deals because we've stuck to our principles. How'd you get him to like you? <laughs> I heard he's a big fan. I heard he, I heard he thinks you're, you're more fun to talk to than Mitch. Well, that's a low bar. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I say anything bad about Mitch, but his, he's he's a little quieter than me, shall we say? Right, right. Um, but in any case, uh, you know, I'm a New Yorker, and I talk right at him, and I tell him where I think he's wrong. Here's how I opened up our meeting the second time. I said, "Mr. President," he invited us to come to the White House. President invites you, got to go. So I said, "Mr. President," there's huge distrust among our caucuses, meaning Nancy and me, our party, and our constituents and our people, because of kinds of things you've done like the Muslim ban, like doing health care in a partisan way, like what happened at Charlottesville. And you, you know, to, to, for us to get some trust back 
uh, with our constituents, you've got to do some things. And uh, to get back, for you to get any trust with all but your base, you need to do some things. And we proposed Dreamers. And the other thing we actually proposed was stabilizing health care, which we talked about in a minute. On the health care one, he didn't bite. So that's gonna, we're going to have to fight for that in the uh, uh, December budget. But on Dreamers, he seemed genuinely, he said, uh, you know, they, he understood that they didn't come in through any fault of their own, that they're good Americans, good kids. And then he said he wants the wall in return. And we said, no, no wall, Mr. President, no wall. And he tried that for about 15 minutes. But, you know, he's, he's not going to push me around verbally or any other way. And uh, he finally said, okay, we won't do the wall. We'll do some other kind of border security. And we suggested that uh, General Kelly, his chief of staff, and Nancy's staff and my staff negotiate something. Now, they haven't negotiated much since then, and he got a load of blowback from the right wing. I think one of those commentators, Laura Ingraham or Coulter, called him Amnesty Donald. One of them called for him to be impeached. So they've slowed down on it, but uh, we're trying to get the, those negotiations going again. And I do think he wants to help the Dreamers, but I also think there's not many people around him who want to get that done, so it's sort of slowing us down. But we're going to keep at it because it's so important. But negotiating with him, what I find is I go right back at him as a New Yorker. And he sort of seems to enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we hope you continue these, uh, these tough negotiations and get a good deal at the end of the year. And, and thank you so much for coming back on the program. We'll have to have you on again after the next deal-making session. Well, thank you, and thanks for the good job you do. It is my daughters who turn me on to your show, and they are 28 and 31. Oh. So you've got a great audience there, not a bunch of old bats like me. Well, t- <laughs> <laughs> well tell your daughters thank you so much for listening. We appreciate okay. it. Take, All right, take care. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Senator. On the pod today... The host of With Friends Like These, Anna Marie Cox. Welcome, Anna. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. It is good to be here. <laughs> um, who will you be speaking with for this week's episode? It is the live show that I did with uh, Michael Steele, uh, former RNC chairman, and the best lieutenant governor Maryland has ever had. Wow. Uh, at least of the uh, one who is both black and Republican, definitely the best. <laughs> Um, and he, he was awesome. He was, he was a real crowd pleaser. Uh, he's a very funny guy. Um, where was the show? Where did you record this? Oh gosh. I'm going to forget the name of the theater, but it was in the Texas student union. It was in Austin. It was awesome. It was great. It was, it was 92 degrees, but not in the studio. The studio is fairly cool, cool, but it was very warm in Austin, which I don't mind. I don't, I don't mind warmth, but, uh, I can tell you that Michael Steele is an, Michael Steele is an entertaining guy. I would, uh, <laughs> I'd be interested in that conversation. I just Googled Go Maryland Lieutenant Governor uh-huh. and there are, <laughs> there have only been nine. So he's in the run. Although <laughs> Kathleen, Ke- Kathleen Kenny Townsend might have something to say about it. <laughs> he's definitely in the top 10. That's for yes, sure. Definitely in the top 10. Um, it was really fun. I mean, we talked about, we talked about the, uh, you know, Kaepernick protests. We talked about racial resentment and economic anxiety. Uh, and I guess I'll preview just a bit, which is that he came a little, you know, came down harder on the economic anxiety argument than I would have expected. Hmm. Yeah. He's still a Republican, basically. I mean, yeah, you know, that he still is. He hasn't, and he says, you know, he hasn't torn up his, his, uh, voter registration yet he's not there yet so we talk about that right. i think it, it was it was it was awesome 
It was great. Excellent. I'm getting better at selling the. I'm getting getting better at selling the show. That was a great pitch. I'm going to listen. Thank um, you. Thank you. <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you guys about um, something that I noticed this morning. I didn't see the statement yesterday, but Trump attacked Facebook yesterday. It said, you know, Facebook has always been anti-Trump. And then, you know, they they colluded with the New York Times and Washington Post and everyone mm. else against him. I don't I don't think he knows what the word collusion means. It just keeps mm. keeps using it in the wrong way. So anyway, so Trump does you know, sends this tweet out. And then later in the day we get a statement from Mark Zuckerberg that he posts on Facebook. And it starts Every day I work to bring people together and build a community for everyone. We hope to give all people a voice and create a platform for all ideas. Fine, nice, lovely, great. Then Zuckerberg goes on to say, Trump says Facebook is against him. Liberals say we help Trump. Both sides are upset about ideas and content they don't like. That's what running a platform for all ideas looks like. Is that what it looks like? Um, I'll jump in. Yeah, uh, you know, it's not so much that liberals say that Facebook helped Trump; it's that the FBI <laughs> says the, the intelligence <laughs> agencies, the law enforcement the, the, agencies. Yeah, they say they abetted Russian trolls. That's what the situation is. Like, it's not like liberals running around saying anything, um, except you know, pointing to intelligence agency reports. So there's that. I mean, off, obviously, like. He's running. <laughs> you know, this is like the worst example of you know kind of what about isms, both sides uh, ism that, that I've heard in quite a while. Um, it drives and- me. It's like a very Silicon Valley ethos, which is if you talk to a lot of people there, a lot of people in tech companies sometimes, or at least a lot of leaders of tech companies there. There's a lot of you know what I think about politics. I think there's just silly partisanship on both sides. And if we could only get rid of that and, you know, disrupt politics and government with technology, all the problems would be solved. And it's just like, yeah, pay we, some attention. We used to call that... Read the news. We used to call that fru- fruitopianism when I worked in <laughs> Silicon Valley for, for briefly uh, during one of the dot-com booms. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't know if he's visited Facebook lately, but the whole every day I work to bring people together... <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. I mean, that's that's not my Facebook feed. I don't know about you guys. But no, and look, I, seeing... I I get he, he believes that uh, this is you know it, the most important thing about Facebook is to keep it this keep it as a platform that anyone can use. That it's a free expression of ideas. That they don't want to censor things. Blah 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 blah. Yeah, that is separate and apart from a foreign adversary using the platform to disrupt an election. Um, it's like liberals, you know, both sides are upset about ideas and content they don't like. Liberals aren't out there complaining that Republicans are posting, um, you know, please embrace Donald Trump's fucking tax plan to lower the marginal rate. <laughs> That's no one's upset about that. We're upset that like, you know, there's there's posts about how John Podesta is running a child porn ring. You know, that's the that's that's the, that's the content we're upset about. That post is yeah. not true. And just in case, for case people miss that. That post is not right. true. Yes, that is not. Right. And look, I think I think you are right that part of the you know part of the Silicon Valley ethos certainly pre-Trump was partisan politics is trivial, and what we need to do is focus on changing the world. And it's like there's a utopian sense to it, but there's also this awkward dance that that a lot of people in Silicon Valley go through because. They are liberal. Most of the people who work for them are liberal. All of their neighbors are liberal. Yet 
they have conservative customers or users like Facebook. And so Facebook's in this situation where I, this, I think the statement was incredibly tone deaf and it's, it is the worst defensive actions ever. It's a thing that reporters say that drive us insane, which is, well, a lot of conservative leader readers say I'm too liberal. And a lot of liberal readers say I'm too conservative. So therefore I must be doing everything right. It's like the Goldilocks defense. Um, yeah. It's like a fucking bull Simpson panel on meet the press. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> cha- the, the challenge for, Facebook is pretty clear, which is more than any other tech company except Google, their platform is used by everyone. And so it is not, they do not, a lot of these companies, whether it's like Uber or others have a more, are used more in cities that are, if you were to poll their users, it would be more liberal than conservative because it'd be younger who are more liberal than conservative. Facebook, everyone's on Facebook. All these Trump people are on Facebook. The 47 percent of the company, the 38 percent of the country that loves Trump, they're all on Facebook and they haven't figured out how to wrestle with that with with that in a way they don't. They're just not deft enough to handle that because it is an incredibly complicated political messaging challenge and they're not up to that. Dan, it's love it. Two things. I, uh. I just came in here with <laughs> I just came in here with both dogs and they're going bananas. Specifically Leo is the one you can hear. And then also <laughs> There is fake news <laughs> that Leo is the fucking barker. There you when go. Pundit again. Is the barker. There you go. Not taking responsibility. The entire company, you won't take every responsibility. Every employee of this company will tell you exactly what's going on. You oh ask my them. goodness. My can goodness. You, guys, you know, can this you guys is why take, take this to a staff meeting. Your, your lack of, you know, this is the problem. You're not relatable in these moments. You know, you go off. Meanwhile, people don't care about which dog did what. See, you know, Leo you all, barked, Pundit barked, but the bottom line is dogs are barking and we just need to change you things. You all know what's going on. Uh, <laughs> on the, you, on the you, matter, you, you can tell. On the matter of Facebook, I also think that that's something. That, Love it. What's your opinion? <laughs> on what? On Facebook. I mean, out of control. Because we, want, we, we wanted to know. That's why we asked you. Wait, someone asked him? Is that right? <laughs> that's, that hurt. All I was going to say is, yeah, I don't care. The uh, <laughs> All I was going to say is that there's a kind of like, there's a, there's this strain of, of Silicon Valley that's sort of cosmopolitan conservative in that they really don't have a political home. Like, they're pro-gay, they're, they're, they're in a kind of liberal epicenter, but they're poli- – like, if there was a world in which you could believe in libertarian, like, anti-government policies and be pro-gay, and if there was, like, a big American party that was a home for that kind of thinking, I think there'd, there'd be a lot of these kind of whatever – Rockefeller, Silicon Valley conservatives, mm. but they don't. So they're ostensibly liberals, but then they, you know, that's it. I think that's right. I think they also get, uh, they are more scared of uh, the right and Republicans yelling at them for being liberal than they are for from for, about the left yelling at them. I just think that's, I, I think that they probably get more complaints. I mean, remember like the trending topics issue yeah. with Facebook I- and they invited like, all these Republican strategists and consultants to Facebook to tell them like how wrong they were, you know, <laughs> like Tucker Carlson and Glenn Beck. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, <laughs> you know, I also want to want to say, I think another problem that Silicon Valley has in terms of how they view their role is that they don't view their role. Like yes, they think of right. their platforms as public utilities, as these impartial areas, you know, of towns that are like town squares where anyone can say anything and their duty is to just make sure that the there's some kind of level playing field and everyone has equal access. But that's a lie. These yeah. are not public utilities. And also not everyone has equal access. And also the way these forums are constructed, you know, 
val you know uh, privileges some voices over others and the way that these you know they're policed privileges some voices over others you know twitter and facebook have that have abuse problems that they are sort of systematically unable to really address yeah. And it's definitely not by making longer tweets. <laughs> like, yeah, no, it, you know? yeah, and we should throw Twitter in there too because Twitter has, <laughs> you know, the same kind of right. abuse, different kind of abuse problems, but they're they're serious abuse problems as well. Um, no, yeah, I think I think you're exactly right, and I don't I understand that. Look, they like to think of themselves as platforms only. The truth is, they are media companies, and mm-hmm. media companies have certain responsibilities. I get their challenge which is that it is a slippery slope and it is very hard to curate and edit with, with without going into you know we're going to police free speech but they have to figure out a way to do it the answer is not to, to like yell at liberals <laughs> no and I, I also want to point out that one thing that's maybe to me the most terrifying part of of this conspiracy is that you know they didn't make us racist and divisive right they just weaponized totally. existing sentiments and you know they are the ones that shouted fire in a crowded theater but we're the ones that overpacked the theater and like didn't build any fire exits and <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah. it, no it's, it's hard right to say and like, i and and they would say that and they're right about that too. i actually but no i think that's i think that's mostly right but i think it's a little bit also you know, you know, you pull the trigger on the gun, but the gun, but the, but the trigger pulls your finger too. It is true that 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 Twitter and Facebook exposes a lot of animus and hatred and racism that was there underneath the th- the surface. But there's also a part of these the, the way these platforms are built that makes it easy and simple to kind of snowball these ideas. And and so you know, there are plenty of people out there using Twitter to to espouse racist ideas, taking on a, a racist persona online because it's fun and they're angry and they're bitter anonymity and all the rest, anonymity and all Twitter. the rest that in their personal life and in their private life would never engage in that kind of conduct. And by virtue of the fact that they've been doing this online for so long, it has changed them and made them more like the person that they became when they started tweeting these heinous things to begin with. Yeah, I was gonna say there's a couple of things happening here, which is one. Facebook in particular has grown so big so fast that the people at Facebook have do not know what is happening or how people are using the platform. They obviously never imagined a world right. where Russia could use their ad buying system and essentially use the algorithm that fuels the platform to push to intervene in our election in a malicious way. That had never even occurred to them, so they were not prepared for that. And it's so big that they don't know that when they make their statements about what has happened and what's not happened, they don't really know the answer, which is why they've had to revise their approach to this like, like 12 times now. Mm-hmm. And there's a much bigger question that is true of both Facebook and Twitter and Instagram about it's like, it's sort of an existential question around how these algorithms that sh- which predict what we're interested in and then double and triple down on that, how that affects the human mind, right? Where you, because it it creates this impression that everyone feels the way you feel because it's showing you only the things the people who feel. Now, that's also the fault of the user who is making a set of choices that these are the things they want. Like, no, I mean, it's the same challenge that when we yell at ABC News or NBC News or CBS, like, why are you leading with the weather instead of... You know, healthcare or tax policies, it's because people watch weather, right? So it's 
at the end of the day, it's also the fault of the people that they are making a set. Of, they are choosing this sort of life over a different sort of life where you're exposed to different ideas. Yeah, it's a tough one. But anyway, uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> you yes. can find our Instagram account. <laughs> that was very much like that was very much like who boy Twitter. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, everyone, I think I think we're ready for the outro. Are we ready for the outro? Music. I'm never. I am never ready for we're the outro. Ready for the outro. Guys. I got it. I'm oh, never okay. not ready okay. for the outro. Everyone, everyone, check out Anna's episode with uh, Michael Steele. And we're about to go to a recording of Love or Leave It this evening. Oh, yes. Yeah, we are. Yeah, Thursday, early. Yeah. Um, so that's exciting. And, you know, we'll see all, We'll see the rest of you. Oh, and please Thank you. donate to Puerto Rico. People there are in incredible need right now. It is a. Uh, it's getting to be a humanitarian disaster, and uh, they need help. These are Americans who don't have electricity. They don't have cell service. Food and water are getting water. scarce now. They don't have water. Yeah, it's a it's a dire situation there. If you go to globalgiving.org, you can contribute and and help our fellow Americans in Puerto Rico. Uh, so please do that. And that's it. That's all the time we have for today. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Bye. Yeah, Bye see guys. You online. <laughs> see you online. <laughs>